that we're in this passage, Romans 13, 1 to 7, that Ian just read. It's a controversial passage, and it's been a controversial passage in our country for a very long time. Uh, you may remember most recently, Attorney General Jeff Sessions referenced it with regard to uh, justification for separated families entering uh, illegally at the U.S. border. But if you go back, all the way back to 1776, it's getting quoted by both sides. Back at that time, British loyalists quoted verse 1 as a biblical mandate to remain subject to King George as the governing authority instituted by God. And then American patriots quoted verse 4 saying that George was not God's servant for good. Well, then he had forfeited his right to rule, and he would be forever pilloried by Americans all the way up to hip-hop musicals on Broadway. Um, 75 years later, uh, in the lead-up to the Civil War, Americans had learned from this experience, and so they uh, turned from using Romans 13 against their enemies to using it against one another. And there were many different uses of it at that time, but the uh, same sort of thing, both sides ultimately, some using it in defense of slavery and some using it to justify abolition. And some historians argue that it was then, at the time leading up to the Civil War, long before the Stokes trial, that uh, the Bible lost it's really, it's authority in American public discourse back, way back then. It's this controversial passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, and I don't think uh, I'll be able to resolve all of the controversies by any stretch. But I do believe that Christians in general have been approaching this passage from the wrong angle. Instead of approaching it, instead of filing it under the category of patriotism, I think we should be filing it under foreign service. I think that's the real difference for how to read it. And so I want to begin today by locating this in the story of the Bible broadly, and then locating it particularly in Paul's life. And then once we've done some contextual work to zoom in on the passage itself and think a little bit about how it tells us to live today here in Washington, and I trust that God will speak to us through it. So with that in mind, I encourage you to open to it, Romans 13, and we're going to pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for the, even the tough parts like this one, and we trust that you will use it in us. For your glory and for our good. Fill us with your spirit to understand what you're saying and bless this time spent in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start with some context, first of all, uh, locating this in the big story of the gospel, the story of the Bible, and then more specifically locating it in Paul's story, and then uh, thinking about it in terms of foreign service here in Washington, D.C. In terms of the big picture, the Bible is a great epic story that we oftentimes summarize in terms of four chapters, in terms of creation, fall, 
redemption and consummation. And we want to think about where this particular passage fits in that great big story. And of course, it's in the New Testament, it's in Paul's epistles, and so um, it fits on the timeline somewhere between uh, redemption and consummation, somewhere between Jesus' death and resurrection and Jesus' coming again. But forget all that you know about it for just a moment, and let's look at it again. If you really look at this passage, if it weren't such a well-known passage, and if you were hearing it for the first time, where would you locate it in the Bible? Where would you locate it in the story of redemption? There's no mention of Jesus, no mention of the Holy Spirit, no mention of the church. It's a, it's a passage about submitting, submitting, obeying authorities and paying taxes. And I think if we knew nothing else about it, I think most of us would probably locate it somewhere in the Old Testament, probably back in the area of Old Testament law, back with eating kosher and observing the ceremonies and so on. But here it is in the New Testament epistles. Why do you think it's here? To say to understand how it ended up here, we have to really look at Jesus, at his story, who he was, what he was about. We're currently in a season of Epiphany, and this is a time when we think especially about Jesus' life between Christmas and Easter, his, his ministry, his miracles, his teaching. And of all the things that Jesus talked about with his disciples, what do you think was the thing that he talked about the most? What topic came up more than anything else in his teaching? Was it love? Was it family, marriage, children? It wasn't money, as some people sometimes say. What topic did Jesus talk about the most? Topic that is near and dear to the hearts of many in Washington. He talked about politics. That's what Jesus talked about the most. Of all the things he talked about in his parables, the kingdom of God featured at the top. More of his parables are about God's kingdom than anything else. God's kingdom, Jesus said, will be like a seed starting small, buried in the ground, and then will rise and grow and flourish. So much so that someday it will encompass all of the nations. That's a political statement. Being part of this kingdom is worth it, Jesus said, no matter what the cost, because God's kingdom is of inestimable value. It's like buried treasure or like an expensive pearl. But it's not Disney World. It's not a magic kingdom. It is God's kingdom. It's real. It's a real kingdom. And so as it grows, some will be persecuted. Some will suffer because of it. But in time, the poor in spirit, the peacemakers, those who weep, those who care for the least of these, all who follow the king will enter his kingdom. So Jesus' kingdom is good news. It's gospel, which was a political word before it was ever a religious word or a kind of music. 
In the Bible, the good news of the gospel is that a new and better government is on the way. So, for example, Jesus uses this word a lot, and, and the gospel authors use it a lot to describe the growth of his kingdom. Matthew 9.35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of his kingdom. Even in Jesus' teaching on prayer, politics comes up very early in what he has to say. When one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, what did Jesus say? He said, Our Father in heaven, let your name be revered, reverence, and what did he say? Let your kingdom come. This is Jesus' model prayer, the one he taught to Christians to say, and we've been saying night and day ever since, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And why is that? Because what happened next in the story of redemption is that Jesus died, he was crucified for our sins, and then he rose from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's enthroned, and that inaugurated the kingdom of God. And as King Jesus' first act was to pour out his spirit upon his church so that his ambassadors, his kingdom ambassadors, might go out to proclaim the gospel of his kingdom to all nations. Someday Jesus will return as king in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. But that day has not yet come, so... Every day we join together with other believers all around the world in rolling out of bed, getting on our knees, and saying, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Hopefully not mindlessly, but very mindfully, because the more we say it, the more we long for it to be the reality that everyone experiences, not just us. If you're a Christian, then Jesus is your king right now. Jesus is your king right now. Someday all humanity will submit to him. Someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord and King. And that will be the best day ever, the best thing that has happened to humanity ever. Because we'll no longer talk about what's wrong with politics. We'll no longer have to contend with health care policy or with defense spending or international diplomacy because justice and mercy will kiss. They'll come together and all will be well. All will be well. That's where the epic story of the Bible is headed. So we ought not to be surprised to find politics in the New Testament here in the book of Romans. But what about this particular passage? Because this passage is not talking about submitting to King Jesus. Romans 13 is talking about secular authorities, isn't it? It's talking about submitting to secular authorities who may or who may not recognize Jesus as the higher power. And if they don't recognize Jesus as their higher power, isn't Paul's instruction to submit to them counterproductive at best and possibly treasonous? A little more context can help, I think. So let's zoom in further into the story. Let's look at Paul's story in particular. When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, 
It had been about 30 years since Jesus, the risen King Jesus, had met him on the road to Damascus. Paul had been knocked off his high horse, and Paul came to faith. It took him a few years to sort out what that meant for his vocation, but soon enough, Paul was out there as an ambassador of the gospel of King Jesus. He, since his calling, was to be an ambassador of the gospel to the Gentiles, which sounds like religious language, but it's in fact political language, right? Paul went on the campaign trail. He went from city to city in Asia Minor, inviting Jews and Gentiles to give their allegiance to Jesus the Lord, or King. And everywhere Paul went, he proclaimed that Jesus was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. And someday, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But not just yet. Not just yet. For now, Jesus is giving the world time to repent of their rebellion against God's rule and to make Jesus Lord. So even way back then, way back then in Paul's day, Paul was already profoundly aware of the tension that Christians today also feel living between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, right? Christ has already died, Christ has already risen, but Christ has not yet come again. His kingdom is already inaugurated, but his kingdom is not yet consummated. And what Paul modeled for us in this tension is a kind of foreign service under King Jesus. We are not soldiers. We are not sent out to topple secular governments. Rather, we are ambassadors of King Jesus, engaging in diplomacy on behalf of his kingdom. For a little more than a decade, starting around 2006, there was this summer festival for Christian anarchists that would gather in our region every now and then. It eventually disbanded for want of organization. Real. <laughs> Um, but while they were active, they advocated getting back to paradise by completely going off the grid. And I remember this magazine article about them and the reporter uh, asking them some pretty tough questions like, uh, how are you doing this? Aren't you, aren't you using the internet to connect with one another at these conferences? And, uh, Aren't you using roads to get to these festivals? And uh, aren't you depending upon there being fresh city water when you get there, or sewers, and so on? And just pointing out some of the inconsistencies of this uh, living off the grid by using the grid strategy. And uh, so, how are you going to do this? The reporter asked, and it sounded like they were still working out how they were going to be able to do it, still have really good coffee every morning. Um, Paul knew that the Roman Empire's days were numbered. Sooner or later, it was going to come to an end. He knew this, but he didn't try to accelerate Rome's fall. 
Not only did he use Roman roads and ports to travel on behalf of King Jesus, but he also flashed his Roman passport a time or two when he needed it in order to get out of the jam. Paul knew that the best way to spread the gospel of King Jesus wasn't by tearing down existing civilizations, but as much as possible by working within them. And that's how he was able to say in Romans 15, just a few chapters from now, that he had finished the work of evangelizing Asia. Think about that. <laughs> he had used the Roman infrastructure to go to all of the major cities in Asia Minor. And now he's writing to the Romans. And one of the main reasons he's writing to the Romans is that he wants to swing through Rome as he catapults to the western frontier of the Roman Empire. He wants to go to Spain and work his way up the coast in order to share the good news of Jesus with the frontier. As long as the so-called Pax Romana endured, Paul was going to make the most of it as Christ's ambassador. And so, in order for Paul's strategy to work, it was really important that the Christian anarchists not have a festival in the city of Rome. <laughs> you know, think about it. Uh, seven or eight years before Paul wrote to the Romans, there had been an uprising uh, in Rome. And Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews because of tensions over someone uh, the historians record his name as Crestus. And many historians believe that that's a misspelling in reference to Christ. That the, the same thing that was happening in other places where Paul went sharing the good news was also happening in Rome, and that the Jews were rising up against uh, others converting to Christianity. Regardless of whether that happened, in Rome uh, because of Christians. Paul wanted the church in Rome, when he wrote, to pursue peace in the present. That's what we talked about last week, if you remember, Salon preached on that. And in Romans 12, 18, Paul says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, seek peace with all people. And so that's, um, that's assumed as we come to this passage today. It's not to say that there won't be conflict. Conflict is inevitable, as Paul's story demonstrated again and again when you read the story in the book of Acts. But we shouldn't pursue conflicts. We should pursue peace, is what he teaches us. As Christians, we're not called to go out into the world as soldiers or as culture warriors. That is not our job right now. We're diplomats in King Jesus' sworn service. As Paul wrote, to the Corinthians, we have not been given the ministry of demolition. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We'll come back to that in a few moments. Paul said, we are Christ's ambassadors, imploring everyone on his behalf to be reconciled to God. So now, with some of this context in mind, we can uh, do, as Nacho says, and get down to the nitty-gritty in Romans 13. Just look at verse 1. Paul presents the big idea here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except for God, from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. In the Bible, 
Order is always seen as a gift from God. The creation story is about God bringing order out of the chaos. And every time he creates more order in the creation story, God declares that it's good. More order is good. Later in the Bible, when uh, chaos emerges, when the great flood happens, when uh, plagues come on, on Pharaoh in Egypt, when really when anybody dies in the Bible, uh, that's the resurgence of chaos because of God's displeasure. But uh, as Paul says elsewhere, our God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Our God brings order out of the chaos. And from a biblical perspective, order, including government authority, is a gift from God. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans 13.1. Even when that authority isn't ruling particularly well, Jesus confirms this of all places when he stands before Pontius Pilate and says, on Good Friday, he says, Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above, from God. Even Pilate was an authority instituted by God. Even Pilate was a gift from God. And to be clear, what Paul means here by governing authorities is not just the emperor. It's all the powers that be from your A&C rep in your neighborhood all the way up to President Biden. It's, and, and it's everybody in the team. It's all the intermediaries, including probably a lot of you in your supporting roles. There's no single governing authority. It's always a complex system, and we all have different parts that we play in. It's a blessing when it works well, or even relatively well. It's a curse when it doesn't. And usually the more chaos, the more there's a kind of alternative system that develops that creates order, but it gives the power to bullies and bribes. It's not always going to be this way. Someday, Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. That will not be the end of the government, though. Jesus won't drain the swamp. Jesus is going to bring the biggest government there ever will be. <laughs> Talk about big government. He's bringing the biggest one. Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Because every single person in his kingdom will have a role to play. What will be gone, however, is corruption, is injustice, waste, certificate of occupancy permits. Probably not sure this parking tickets. Until then, Paul says we ought to submit to the powers that be. And he gives us two reasons in the rest of this passage. And here they are. First, in verses 2 through 4, we ought to submit to the governing authorities in order to avoid punishment. Because when the system is working, the authorities reward those who keep the law, and they punish those who don't. And in most instances, our lives will be easier and better if we do our part to keep the authorities happy. That's the first reason. The second reason, verses 5 through 7, Paul says, in addition to avoiding punishment, that we should also submit to governing authorities in order to please the Lord. Otherwise, verse 6, 
will suffer from guilty consciences because we're working against God's ordering of things. In his kindness, God gave us an authority structure, a government to help push back the chaos. When we add to the chaos, it usually means that we're at cross purposes with the Lord. And that can't be good. Look at verse 7. You go on cheating on your taxes and not tipping your server, your heart will eventually grow numb to the Lord. Again, verse 7. Keep disrespecting and dishonoring the governing authorities and see if it doesn't interfere with your personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the high king and these people have been put in place by him. So that's what Paul's saying in this passage. And it makes a lot more sense, I think, in the context of what he is doing and where we are headed. Generally speaking, we're to see government as a gift from God. We're to submit to the powers that be in order to keep out of conscience and to have a clean conscience. But what about when governing authorities are unjust? That's the big question, isn't it? Are we to keep on submitting and doing their will, no matter what, even to the point of breaking God's law? Well, no, of course not. Of course not. There are times when God's law requires civil disobedience, as Paul sometimes demonstrated in his career, and also as many other wise Christians have demonstrated through history, thinking of the 20th century, thinking of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, thinking of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Here are just two examples of those who've gone before us and shown us how and when to do it. But we mustn't be cavalier about taking such steps. If you were with us last fall, think about Daniel. Think about the extent, the lengths, the great lengths that he went to and his friends went to in order to try to do as much as they could under their Babylonian captors. And think about how it paid off at the end because Nebuchadnezzar, of all people, came to faith in the Lord. There are many other examples in the Bible of such endurance. Even Moses and Aaron on, waited on the Lord to roll out not just three strikes, but ten chances for Pharaoh to turn back, right? Before, before they finally let God's people out of Egypt. We have to remember that we're not the ones who are going to judge the living and the dead. It's not our job. The Lord will do this. Our ministry isn't judgment. It's not violent overthrow. It's kingdom diplomacy with lame duck governments. Again, there are times when obedience to God's will um, will require disobedience to lesser authorities. And as American Protestants, we are beneficiaries of this, uh, those who went before us on two momentous occasions in particular. But before we go to the barricades, we should long consider Paul, I think. Paul is the great example in this. And I want to read to you just in closing 
the lengths that he went to in order to keep on doing this sworn service. Paul says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And why? Why did Paul endure all of these things? Why should we? Because, as he says in that very same passage, we are ambassadors of Christ. As God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's our chief order of business right now in Christ's own service. Do you pray with me? Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to endure all things for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.